Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 1, Episode 17, The Evan Knox Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. This is going to be a great episode. Before we get started, though, I want to do some podcast housekeeping. We've had the privilege of being together for 17 episodes now, and I am so thankful for you. I hope this podcast is hitting the mark. It's bringing you information that's useful, entertaining, but also applicable. Things that you can do in steps one, two, three, how we can improve. So if we're not hitting the mark, please write me at me at davidpasqualone.com. If we are hitting the mark, please go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, your favorite podcast directory. Give us a five-star review and let the world know that you enjoy this podcast so more people will listen, more guests will come on the show, more sponsors will support it so we can continue to bring you great content. Before we launch this particular episode with Evan, I just want to remind you that season one's coming to a close in a few weeks. We're going to take a short break, then season two will launch, and Lord willing, it will be even more powerful than season one. You can't take one guest and say their story's better than the other, but when I say hopefully season two's better, it's me. Me as a host, the equipment we're using, the format we're using, Hopefully, we're bringing you content that you can enjoy and is valuable. And with our budget and time restraints, we can bring it to you the best possible way. So again, this is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You sincerely are why we do this, to glorify God and to help you grow so that we can all be better people and the world can be a better place. So enjoy this episode of the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 1, Episode 17. The Evan Knox story. Evan, thanks for being here today, man. Thanks, David. I'm excited to hang out with you. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. We had some technical issues before we started, ladies and gentlemen. So this episode must be good because uh, everything was stopping us from producing. Yeah, finally made it though. Yes, yes. 20 minutes into our time. But we have Evan Knox with us today. He's the founder of Caffeine Marketing. He's a serial entrepreneur from a family of entrepreneurs, and he has a remarkable story. To date in the season, we've had people who have had drug addictions. We've had people who have had death and hardship in their life. But what's interesting and how God's going to use Evan's story is his is from the perspective of the son. So we're going to, Evan, the, the format of the show is... You're going to tell your story, the obstacles that were in your way in life, how you overcame them, and then where you're at today and where you're going so we can help you. Sound good? That sounds great. I'm excited. All right, buddy. Then let's just get started. I listened to a lot of your story yesterday, and I was super, super interested. And I know our our audience is going to be as well. So tell us your story. How did it all begin? Yeah, right on. So I grew up in a fairly affluent family in the suburbs of Atlanta. 
And I, as an only child, I felt like I ever had, I had everything I ever wanted and more. Like I remember I would ask for something and my parents thought it was a good idea. They'd get it for me. It wasn't a big deal. And so I never went without, you know, having something that I wanted that my parents otherwise didn't think was bad. But uh, I digress. I guess I was just trying to say is that I, I had, we had everything we needed and more. We had a, a regular house. We had a lake house. We had multiple cars. My parents had timeshares, et cetera. And so I grew up in this affluent lifestyle and that was actually, I figured out later, that was a lot of where my identity was at. And it wasn't until uh, my dad started to struggle with his drug addiction again, when I went into high school, that stuff started to unravel. Now, when you say again, just for clarification, was it throughout your childhood or before your mom and dad get married? Yeah, my parents met at like a an AA and a of sorts function, kind of social. And he had had narcotic problems before that, you know, kind of right when he was out of high school. I mean, I think maybe one or two times somewhere in there. But yeah, he had been clean for most of my, I guess, yeah, my whole childhood. So. Okay. Okay. I don't mean to cut you. I just want to make sure we clarify that. And you said NA, Narcotics Anonymous. Yes. Okay. So yeah, he uh, was in that. But anyway, so he had like I started to struggle with that again, and he was a high-functioning drug addict for a while, and so he was kind of able to keep the house of cards in play until I was about 15 or so, and I was currently working at my grandfather's retail store, where my dad also officed out of for his diamond wholesale company, which is like the B2B side of the jewelry industry, and so... I was actually doing a lot of work with and for my dad and my granddad. And so all of a sudden my dad just stops coming to work. You know, my grandpa and I are like, well, where the heck is he? Like, I don't know. And my mom had kind of already caught on. She knew that like he was doing drugs, but she was very kind and gracious, gracious and uh, didn't want to throw him under the bus and was very like spoke, you know, as highly as she could about him. But they eventually got a divorce. And so, you know, I'm like, where the heck's my dad, you know? Uh, And so I end up working a lot in the business while he's not there. Obviously, as like a 16, 17-year-old, I can only manage a company so much. But that was a really hard time in my life. I remember at at one point, my dad ends up going to jail, which was like super hard. But thankfully, the thing that kind of got me through all of that was maybe a few months before stuff started to get tough with my parents. And even before the whole drug thing with my dad became apparent, I had found my faith in Jesus. I had kind of grown up in a church not really been my thing. I always tried to go to church. I'd rather be at the lake house riding jet skis or something. But whenever I had given my life to Christ, I remember the thing that stuck with me was the fact that God viewed me as his son and that I had been adopted into his family thanks to Jesus paying the penalty for my sin. And so I really hung on to the fact in that season that God was a perfect father. And so even though my earthly father was really struggling. I had a perfectly fa- perfect heavenly father who really loved me, cared for me, and was there for me when my dad w- couldn't be. I think children of people who struggle with substance abuse can relate. That thing, even if they don't want it to, can become the primary thing in their life. And the kids can often be left feeling, hey, am I even important? You know, Because like, if you really love me, then you would pick me over these drugs or whichever. But there's obviously way more to that uh, than that, but that's what it felt like as a kid. And so I was that in that season, I was really able to lean into my faith in Jesus, which was pivotal for me. That's what really I think carried me through that season. And then, like I mentioned in the beginning, was grew up with everything I ever wanted, but eventually my dad's habits caught up with us. And so that's when my parents ended up getting divorced. My dad ends up like 
I mean, I don't, I don't know the whole story, but basically it was from my perception that a lot of his money went towards drugs and uh, not showing up to work. And so selling some of our possessions or most of them being foreclosed on. So like my house I grew up in got foreclosed on, the lake house got foreclosed on, but he went into bankruptcy. It was like not a good scene. No, hey, before you go on too, because yeah. you got so much you're unpacking and, yeah. and we, we got stop me at any time. Yeah, yeah. Don't feel rushed at all because this could go 20 minutes and go two hours or whatever. But yeah. Let's back up just a little bit. Okay. So you grew up going to church, mm-hmm. and but then your world was spinning out of control. Yeah. Were you continuing to go to church at this time just out of the rote, this is what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays or whatever? Or was there something that compelled you to go during this time? Like, how did that transition happen? Because there's a difference between religion and true Christianity, you know? And so people can call themselves whatever they want, but there's a real relationship and there's just social environment. So how did that transition take place as your teenager? Yeah. So the time that I kind of put my faith in Jesus, if I remember, it was like middle of middle school-ish, somewhere in there. Maybe maybe the end of it, I'm not really sure. But I remember it being at a retreat. And in that moment, it just kind of clicked for me. There was that moment where I was like, wow, I don't think I really wanted to go. I know the year before that, I definitely did not want to go <laughs> and th- tell my mom that she convinced me to go the next year. And so I went and I also started to make some friends at church. And so that was one that it clicked for me. And I think my mom just kind of felt awkward going to church after getting divorced. I'm not right or wrong around that. But it just, I've, I think she felt uncomfortable, you know, with her old friend group. So it ends up, you know, my dad's kind of doing his own thing and my mom kind of feels uncomfortable. And so really it was, it was on me. Like no one was making me go to church. My mom took me to church, you know, when I would ask her and she definitely was supportive of that, but she never forced me to go to church outside of when I was probably just would rather be at the lake, you know, when in the <laughs> old days. But uh, yeah, when it was, when I put my faith in Jesus, it was like, no, like this is real. Like this is, there's something to this. I don't have it all figured out, but there's something special here and I want to make it my own. So I kind of started going on my own, which really, I think the brokenness that I was experiencing in my own heart was a catalyst for what made me so passionate about telling my friends about Jesus. I look back And I, in a lot of ways, was fairly destructive in the way that I would go about telling them I wasn't, I wasn't mean or anything. I wasn't like, you know, beating people over the head with like revelations and hellfire and stuff like that. But I just was very enthusiastic and I lacked a lot of self-awareness. And I look back at that season of my life and I... And I have endearing and tender feelings towards younger version of me because I'm just doing the best I could, you know, like I, I'd found Jesus, but yet some of those same habits and tendencies of finding my identity in other people or what my perception, like how people perceive me or whatever was still true. Like that didn't just magically get solved, you know, like I was still me, but yet God was renewing me from the inside out. And it's a process. It's not, yeah. Instant. I mean, totally. salvation's instant. You're yeah. received once you trust Christ. But the process of us changing, there are moments in life for some of us where there's instantaneous 180-degree change. But for most, it's a process over time and growth. Yeah, totally. And there was for sure those moments, yeah, as well. Like there were certain things that was like active decisions that I could make. And I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. But the character of my heart definitely got developed. And I, I look back at my youth leader and I'm really thankful for her in that season because she saw something. I don't know what she saw, but she saw something. And she really just 
opened up opportunities for me to grow in my leadership. And I just, I mean, I remember leading a conference my senior year of high school with, you know, several hundred students at my high school because I had kind of experienced a version of that at this thing called Passion Conference. And I was like, oh, I want my entire high school to meet Jesus. So like, that's the only thing I know how to do. So I'm going to figure out how to do it. And so I found a bunch of people who would help me do that. So that brokenness really compelled me. I think that there's something about hard times and trials in our life that draws closer to God or make it easier to hear Him um, or connect with Him. So, and then just to bring us back, so you're going through, you know, you're seeing your dad making some questionable decisions, bad decisions. You, mm-hmm. you Now you find out he's into drugs. Your parents are going through divorce. So yeah. all this is going on. And then you find this kind of like, even though chaos is outside, yeah. you find this comfort within yourself through Christ. Yeah. And then where do you go from there? So that passion led me to, well, actually, there was a decision to make. So back to the business side, my dad, I think he had either just gone to, to I don't know what they call it, like detention or jail or whatever the term is. It's not prison. He's not going away for a while, but he's spent a few months and I think the term is jail. But mm-hmm. so he's he's there. And at that point, my grandfather has power of attorney and my dad is also kind of aware, like, hey, I got myself here. You know, like I had had very blunt conversations. I'm an Enneagram 8, and you could probably <laughs> tell by my fa- my family of origin how I got to be an Enneagram 8. But uh, I was very confrontational with my dad, and I, I tried. I felt like God was teaching me the entire time as this whole situation was happening with my dad, which was like, hey, he may not be trustworthy, but you're still called to love him. And so I didn't necessarily have to, like, entrust anything to my dad. But I felt like God was definitely convicting me to forgive him because I remember one time where I was like kind of praying and I don't really, the whole audible voice of God thing, maybe there's like three times in my life I feel like that's ever happened. But one of the moments was I was talking to God and then I was like, man, God, like this is so hard. I'm so mad. Like my dad did not show up again. I forget if he like didn't show up to a football game or like one scenario I remember is he didn't uh, go with me to this motocross event that we both wanted to go to for like a year, you know, and he like no showed on me. And I was so mad. And I was like, God, this is so ridiculous. He does not deserve my forgiveness. And in that moment, I felt like God had said to me, he was like, hey, Evan, you didn't either, but I forgave you anyway. And that rocked my world because then I was able to try and forgive my dad, which was still difficult, but trying to forgive him in those scenarios and love him and support him the best I could. Because the other thing I thought is like, man, I don't know how long he's going to be here. Like he could recover, which he eventually did and get sober, but like he could not have. And so I'm only responsible for me and how I treat and love him. So I wasn't going to be mean and ugly to him, but there was the scenarios where I was like, Hey, like dad, you're on drugs. Like, let's just call a spade a spade. Like I'm seeing this. It's right here. And so at that moment, he had already kind of turned out come to terms with that. And they are saying, hey, Evan, um, you've got some experience in the, in the company. Are you interested in like us signing the company over to you? This is my dad becoming kind of aware of his situation and also my granddad because my granddad has power attorney. And in that moment, I was like, well, this is really awkward, guys, because I actually feel like I want to go do mission work right now, which is kind of wild. You know, I'd grown up, always wanted to be an entrepreneur at a business center, but I was like, I really feel like now's the time for me to go do mission work. I don't feel like I was escaping anything. I feel, I'm sure maybe that's true at some level, but I really thought it made sense just at a really logical level to go. If I look at 18 years old, coming out of high school, if, if there's any time for me to actually go and 
to go out and do this whole missionary thing, it's probably now because they don't have a family. It's just, I mean, I have my, my immediate family, but I don't have like a wife or kids or whatever. And so I decided to go join this organization called YWAM and did their discipleship training school. That was super growing for me. I felt like I was really at that moment a, a small fish in a big pond instead of the other way around. But my dad eventually gets out of uh, jail my literally the day of my graduation of high school. I think he got like an exemption or something like that to come out and go see me graduate of high school. Nice. Yeah, it was cool. Awkward for sure, but you know, try to make the most of it. And so that was kind of what my family situation was like all through high school. And I don't want to speak for you, but no matter what our parents do, especially our dads, would you agree there's something inside of us as men that we always want that love and approval from our dad, no matter what the situation? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And my my dad is probably the most vocal dad as far as like telling people how proud he was of me, et cetera. But it was hard for me because what I was experiencing from him was not the same as what he was sharing with other people. So I would have all kinds of people that knew him would be like, oh my gosh, your dad talks about you all the time. But when I'm but I'm like, yeah, but he's like not showing up for random things, you know, like he's, he, so that was tough. Let me ask you a question. What was his background like? Like upbringing and what, what happened in his life that gave him that medication need for, for the drugs? I think I had to go back to my grandfather. My grandfather is possibly one of my favorite people on the planet, but he's not perfect either. I think he really struggled with his dad. His dad, I don't know if there was abuse in the family, but I don't know that his, my great grandfather was especially kind to my, my actual grandfather. And so my grandfather didn't have a great picture on what a loving, caring dad looked like. And I also don't know during that time period that that was really a thing. You know, I don't know that dads were as, as caring and kind or were expected to be at that moment. That whole co-parenting idea. Yeah. Different generation, different expectations. Yeah. And like, hey, do we even share emotions? You know, it's like, that's a new thing. It feels like. <laughs> yeah. You look at me like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think to now your kids are young, correct? Yeah. So I've got a six month old right now. Yeah. So my kids are 17 and 15. Yeah. And just in this time period from my growing up to theirs, oh, you talk about a contrast in parenting and the world. And then you go back another generation to my parents and my grandparents and you know, yours. It, it's a real change. I mean, the whole mentality and style of the home is completely different. And, you know, you hear a lot of people joke about the snowflake generation. And to us as older people, yeah, I mean, we used to be like, you know, suck it up, be a man. What are you complaining about? Get through it, adapt and overcome. Right. And now the generation's a lot different where there's definite pros and there's definite cons so with your dad not being able to express love to you but he was super proud of you with everyone else Mm. it automatically leads me to believe what was his upbringing like you know what was his paradigm what happened to him that he couldn't express that so that's where i was going with that because that now you're seeing a difference but some people call it generational sins have you ever heard that term Hmm. yeah yeah, it's learned behavior as a Christian world. They call it generational sins. But at the end of the day, the cool thing is we can break it with us. Yeah. We can break it with us. So it's cool you're recognizing it. So now you can break it with your children so they don't have that. Yeah, absolutely. And like you saying that makes me feel like, you know, I'm looking at my grandfather who is incredibly loved by everybody. But man, he's he worked very hard for this entrepreneurial dream of his to own a company and make that work. 
And so he may not have been as involved in my dad's life as he wanted to. He also probably grew wiser with age. And so he maybe learned to express himself better in life, but he may not have done that as well as a regular dad. My dad and my uncle are both like were, well, my dad were, and my uncle is just a handful. (laughs) I mean, just a lot of energy and a lot to handle. So I can imagine parenting them would just be hard anyway. If Even if you were a perfect person, that might be difficult. But that possibly, I don't know where that started with my dad. He's an Enneagram or he was an Enneagram 7 wing 8, which is like this personality type thing that you can check out. But when you look at the sins of a seven, uh, a seven doesn't want to feel pain. They typically will avoid feeling any sort of pain possible. And so my assumption is that he probably turned to drugs because he didn't want to feel pain of some sort. And I don't know what that was. Yeah, he was medicating and, and he was trying to avoid that. And then just so the listeners know too, what you're talking about, the sevens and the eights, mm-hmm. some people have heard of dis, some people have heard the lion, the beaver, the otter. These are all personality type measurements. And that's what Evan's referring to, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, you can check out Ian, a guy named Ian Cron. He's got a pretty good book on it. But yeah, it's, I, I don't, I, sometimes I think of the Enneagram's a little hokey, but it is really helpful to understand different people and their wiring for sure. Oh, yeah. One that's free. Have you ever seen the 16 personalities? Uh-uh. I'll check it oh, out. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll put that link in the show notes and I'll, I'll put a link to the Ian Cron too. But that one's a free one and mm. it is bought on as much as I have seen. Okay. I've honestly, I mean, I'm 43. I'm about to be 43. Mm-hmm. I've got a master's in counseling and executive leadership. So I've, and I've just in business, I mean, how many hundreds of these personality tests you take through the years? Yeah. But this 16 personalities, it's a free tool. You can always upgrade it, but they've sent me emails and I'm like, man, that actually helped me with insight to myself, oh, like really? understanding the motivation of what I'm doing and why. And, you know, I've read a lot of books on the topic, and mm-hmm. that was truly one of the best tools I've seen. That's so amazing. I'll put that in the sh- yeah, yeah. So, and I'm going to check out the one you were saying, the Ian Knox. Cool, man. But go on with your story. Yeah. So, I left high school, family. My This is another key part of my story. My mom ends up getting remarried. She gets remarried to a guy named John. I'll circle back to John here in a little bit. John John was a great guy, hardworking guy. Also, another small business owner. He owned a an HVAC company, had a couple guys working for him, but a different side of the business world for sure. So anyway, I leave Atlanta, leave high school, go do uh, this thing called YWAM. I really enjoy it. I feel like I was really challenged in a lot of ways, not only my theology, but personally, I figured out some stuff that's culturally appropriate in the South is probably not okay everywhere else in the world. Like being really huggy, people are not about that. So, <laughs> and there's words you use that in one region are okay, and in other regions they are not. Like oh, yeah. I remember coming down the south from New England, there's words pastors would use from the pulpit, and down here they're like hardcore swears. Oh, like, really? I wasn't trying to offend anybody. I'm like, I'm sorry. That's so, so you found funny. that when you were in Australia and in your travels? Yeah, and it was little cultural nuances, and not only for Australia, but the the community that I was in was a lot of international community. So there's a lot of people from Europe, a few people from Asia. So I just got a great exposure to a lot of different cultures and realized like, wow, I mean, there's so much that I don't know. And so many times, I think that's when I really started become, to learn like, wow, I could be wrong about so many things and feel so confident about it. And then a year later, be like, what the heck was I thinking? Uh-huh. Um, 
Oh yeah, totally. I always get nervous. Like you, there's. We're probably gonna look back on this podcast episode and three or four years from now and just shake our heads at some level. So, yeah, I think. Do you ever hear that quote? I think it was John Adams, and he. I don't. I'm gonna butcher this. I'll try to put it up, but it basically says one of the scariest things in the world is someone who knows they're right. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, because they know they're right, but really they're wrong. So yeah, it's, it's, so we're all gonna grow. Yep. Every 10 years, we'll look back and be like, what a bonehead I was. Yeah, totally. And that's just part of the process. Like, you got to give yourself grace. And just like when I'm looking back at 18-year-old me, you know, who's super enthusiastic, but kind of going about it the wrong way and still has an ego or still has a big ego. I mean, I just got to feel compassion for him. You know, he's just doing the best he can. And 45-year-old me will look back at me one day and be, you know, he's just doing the best he can right now. And that's all I can do. Yeah, it's like looking at our kids, even with a, a infant or a toddler, they'll do something we're like, what? it's like funny. Like, man, they just pick that up and put in their mouth. Are you crazy? Yeah. But like, that's like God looking at us. He's like, he loves us and he's laughing in a way. And it's like, not laughing at sin, but you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we're growing, we're learning. That's just part of the process. And we get it right. It's time to go home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if we ever become perfect. So, so go ahead. So now you're in Australia, you're learning a ton, you're seeing the whole world's different than what you knew. Where are you at now? So I went to Australia, then I went and did, you know, quote, outreach, end quote. And we basically just went and partnered with local nonprofits and churches for a few months. And I got to live in Thailand, which was really cool. But at the same time, just was exposed to just some really extreme poverty and put things in perspective for me, not to be cliche, but really you go over there and people who not only don't have anything, that's one thing that really does suck. Sometimes that can even be a better lifestyle in, in some regards, but people who are just really, really sick. And so I would remember we would go walk to a market or go to a somewhere to go like buy things and people would be on the sides of the road, old ladies, random people, and they would have skin diseases. Uh, And I remember walking past a guy whose face was like half rotted off and his limbs were rotting. You could see the tendons and the bones. Like the guy looked hardly alive. Like it was the scariest thing that I'd seen. And I had almost passed out when I passed, like I I walked by him because I remember being like, what does that smell? And then just I caught his eye or one of his eye and it was just really uh, rattling. And so I had to, when I came back to- What was that? Leprosy or what was it? What would we consider it? I have no idea. I, a friend tried to describe it to me that like his body had developed some sort of like infection, bacterial infection that was like basically killing it from the inside out. So it was like his own skin was like fighting itself or something like that. Wow. So stuff that we go to like CVS and get medicine for, they're just, it's progressed so far. They're dying from it. I, I mean, that's my guess. Um, I'm not probably educated enough to speak yeah. on that, but man. Um, it was, it was tough for sure. And so the random thing is that I would come back, when I came back to America, I would be walking in Publix or Kroger or whatever. And then all of a sudden I would just start crying. Like I just was, they call it culture, like reverse culture shock. And so when you go from somewhere like that and you come back to like your normal environment, you're just like, people are spending $200 on shoes. Like you just like, you lose your mind. You know, you, you yeah. just, you're like, what in the world? And you probably have the right perspective at that point. Honestly, you probably have the right perspective and you're not desensitized again, correct? Right. And there's probably a balance of both, right? You don't want to just like not enjoy life at all, I don't think. I think that there's definitely a balance, but there is an awareness that like, hey, if you know, to all my business owner friends out there, I love Porsche. My wife and I play around with the idea of buying a Porsche like every other week. <laughs> and we're like, what about this one? We're like, no, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. But like, you know, 
if you're going to spend $120,000 on a car, like you have to at least consider where else that money's going. But at the same time, some people give so much money away, they're giving millions and millions of dollars away. And then it's like $120,000 Porsche is nothing percentage wise in comparison to what, how generous they are. So yeah, everything in perspective, I guess. Yeah, it's between you and God, and it's it's however you. I'm not saying if you buy a nice, if you buy a yacht, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it depends right. on your relationship with God and what He's telling you to do. But I'm just talking about commenting. If if we were to really look at the grand scheme of things, like you were saying, we need shoes. We don't need two hundred fifty dollars shoes. Right. We need a vehicle. We don't need a three point eight million dollar vehicle. So the grand scheme of things, you just saw the. Dep- pravity of man and the pain and the suffering and you're like dude we could literally heal this whole village with the money that we're spending on golf fees so right. that that's what you were feeling you had just a, a real perspective of need versus want yes and what i often like i think when i look at that i try not to take the perspective of like oh my gosh people are crazy they're spending so much money because there's always that plank in my own eye and once a time it was really apparent for me was I was in Ecuador on a, a similar shorter term trip and I was talking to the guy who like ran the ministry that we were partnering with there. And I'm like, I'm just trying to make guy talk. You know, we've been talking about other random things. I thought we, I, I was single. I think I was thinking, talking about how cute girls were or something like that. And I'm like, all right, well, what kind of car do you like? You know, like, and he's like, man, people around here, it's not like, what car do you like? It's like, if you even have a car, like it was just a, totally eye-opening to me because here I am like, oh, what car would I want? Which is like the dumbest thing. It's all uh, not going to matter a hundred years from now. But at the same time, he's over here like, man, we don't even think like that. that. That's not even a thought that we have here. It's just, do you have a car? Like, do you even have transportation at all? Which was crazy. Yeah, it's, it is crazy. And it's sometimes like you were talking about earlier, we have to hit the lows or to, to really appreciate anything. Uh, I remember my, <clears throat> excuse me, my uncle coming back from his like, He's been in every conflict since Vietnam in the military. Wow. And when he was in his last tour in Iraq, I remember him coming back and he literally said it's the worst thing he ever saw. It took him like nine months. And this is a solid, he worked for MIT, you know, small institution. This guy <laughs> is top notch in every aspect of humanity. And it shook him up and, yeah. and it changed his worldview. When he came back, one of the benefits was... Who cares? Like, who cares about anything? Look at nobody's dying, nobody's being raped, nobody's starving, nobody's being tortured. Man, we got it easy. He's like, anything that happens to me, I got a smile on my face now because he saw so much over his life. But I guess that third trip out there just was it was changing to a point of now everything is just a blessing. Everything's a blessing. And thankfully. You know, he's years out now and he still has that. So the perspective you've had repeatedly, what a blessing it is you get to have that experience and see. Yeah, absolutely. And it actually was, I feel, in re- everything's clear in retrospect, but when we first got married, my wife and I, 2016, it was kind of hard for me, even when we were dating, because she had not had that same experience, right? That she had not seen extreme poverty. Her home life was fairly normal. And so I, it was really hard hard for me to give grace to her in certain areas. Like, you know, let's say she had a hard day at work. I'd, I struggle with empathy now because even though that is kind of a small thing, like I need to care for her in that moment, right? I need to be caring about whatever scenario is because every, every, it feels important to somebody. It's important to them, like in a story. However, 
it's really hard for me to be empathetic at some level because now I'm like, oh, like you're freaking out about this random thing over here. But like in retrospect, it's really not that big of a deal. Like there are so many people who don't have access to clean drinking water. Like this is not the worst thing in the world. Like even if I have a client, so, you know, occasionally clients decide not to work with caffeine anymore. It's not a good fit, whichever. And in those moments, that's hard. It's a hard conversation, but I have to remind myself in retrospect, does this matter a hundred years from now? No. Does, is, is this really that bad in comparison to the stuff that I was seeing in Thailand among other things? No, not really. Do I have to sell my kid in order to feed my family? Like the rest of my family? No. Like this is all very surface level things. That, and that's that's great, man. And then to bridge that gap, if anybody's listening who's not married, I remember, did you know Charles Holmshire by any chance? Mm-hmm. Colorado neighborhood bio time? Sounds cool. It, oh, not bio time's been around. Neighborhood bio time's around for like 65 years. And okay. he was the founder, ran it for like 55 of those years. Oh, man, he's he was like my grandpa. And I love wow. that man. He was probably the godliest human I've ever met. Not per, not without sin, right? but man, what a great guy. And I learned so much from him. But one day I asked him, you know, you're in college and you're thinking about who you're going to marry. Mm-hmm. And he said exactly what you just said, Evan. He said, it's not the color of the skin. It's, it's the culture. He's like, when you marry someone, he's like, you want to marry someone with the closest culture to what you grew up with as possible. He's like, you're both going to grow. You're both going to glorify God. Nothing Mm -hmm. will be exact. He's like, but the best marriages typically have that same cultural foundation. Interesting. So they can understand each other and grow. And like you said, you had a different, (laughs) your backgrounds are different and your perspectives are different. So you're going to grow together. Yeah, they're so growing. Yeah, yeah. But what he was saying that if you're listening, take it to heart because all of us have learned, let's say, the hard way. Yeah. But we love our wives. But Mm -hmm. the more culturally similar you are, the easier marriage is because you're Mm -hmm. on that same plane. And like you said, you had experiences that she didn't have. Mm -hmm. You go back, take another mission strip together, and now you're sharing that and the culture just develops. So, all right, man, we'll get back. Go, go, go. We keep getting to trail, but I think it's good stuff. Yeah. So that organization was a lot of fun. Theologically, I'd say that they're a little bit more charismatic than I would probably identify with, but I did feel like I needed to be with that organization a little bit longer. And so I decided to do part of their university program in Colorado and do a school of ministry development. Does just follow that a little bit longer. And so I went out there and I worked for a church called Flatirons, which was a ton of fun. I had some incredible community, met two of my best friends out there um, who I'm still close with were guys in my wedding. And that's also where I met Missy. And so that's also kind of a fun story. She had dated a friend of mine for about a month and then they broke up. And about a year later, I was like, hey, man, <laughs> would you be okay if I like talked to her? And he was like, yeah, go for it. So that's awesome. uh, yeah, anyway, so... That was fun. We got married. And then right after, and actually in that season was in a lot of ways, really fruitful, had incredible friendships. The church was awesome. Some of the people that I worked with with were, were really hard to work work for. I was a, a, kind of like a resident where it was like a year long internship. And I, I feel like I've learned more under leadership that I really didn't like than I have under leadership that I've loved. And so that's I mean, always going to be true, I think. A hundred percent. And so I would see the people that were leading me and I would think, man, 
I, this could be wrong. I could totally be wrong here. But like what I was perceiving and what I feel like a, a couple people around me were saying that was also the case was like, man, it's possible that this person is like being extra harsh on you because they feel threatened. And I was like, that's really interesting. So like I made it like a point to like whenever because there will be inevitably there there are people that are way more talented than I am, smart than I am, cooler, whatever, that work for me or work with me or whichever. <clears throat> but in those moments, I'm like, man, I have to check that at the door. Like I am here to as their leader, I'm here to serve them. And so that was a moment where I was like, man, I really don't want that to be a, a thing that's secretly sabotaging my own leadership. So that happened. And then we when we got married, we left and uh, drove across the country, literally had our cars packed and got married and drove our cars. We went to Honeymoon and Vail and Steamboat, Colorado. And then we drove all the way across to Charlotte. And I went to another internship program uh, with this place called Elevation Church. Elevation Church was great in so many ways. Uh, a lot of awesome leaders, but the pace there, I don't think was... At the end of the day, it was not a good fit for our family. I hear since it's changed, it's slowed down a little bit since then. But it could have been just the people that we were working for or maybe the season of life. I don't know. But we were working like over 70 hours a week. And having just got married, we were like, who are each other? Like all we do is like see each other at work. We both worked at the church. And so we decided the best move for us was to move down to Atlanta. And I had been in a marketing role and... Oh, actually, let me back up before that. Two events happened in my life, which really dramatically affected me in a lot of ways. It was when I was in Colorado, before we got married, my stepdad passed away in a car wreck. And that was like absolutely devastating. I'd grown pretty close to him. And so that was really hard. Also hard because I was close to my mom. And then, you know, having to walk th- through that season with my mom was really tough. And... Then we go to Charlotte and then like almost within two years or a year and a half later, whatever it was, my dad ends up getting a rare infection in his mouth that goes directly to his brain. And basically within a day, he went from being completely normal to they found him on the ground of his kitchen. And then they took him to the hospital. And after the, by the time they got to the hospital, he had double pneumonia. And then by that time, I'm driving down from Charlotte down to Atlanta and I make it for the last hour of his life when he's on full life support. Um, and so I watched my dad die in front of me, which was super hard. And that's that's exceptionally crazy because he had a drug addiction that could have taken him so many times. Right. But a dentist is what is I hate to say used, but that's what took him out. That's crazy. Yeah, it may not have been like the dentist. I don't. I don't, obviously don't know all the stuff behind it, but there's definitely like. It was some sort of like thing with his mouth. He had gotten some work done. And I don't know if he was taking the right medication. I, I really don't know. But For 24 hours he was. Yeah. Know, wow. So his, uh, his girlfriend was like coming over later that evening to like hang out or whatever. And she had found him on the floor and like called 911. And it was crazy. And so having to like in that moment, my grandfather rightfully is like beside himself. And so is my grandmother and the rest of my family. And so that Enneagram 8, as much as it can be hard to be an 8 sometimes, like was kind of a gift. So like in chaos and trauma like that, I was just able to have peace, like just through my natural wiring that God had given me as a gift. Uh, And then also leaning on him in that scenario and trying to navigate that and plan my dad's funeral. And it's really tough. And anyone who's gone through grief with your family, you know what I'm talking about. But that was pretty hard, no doubt. Now, at that point, was your dad clean or was he still using? 
Because, like, I'm sure when they found him, was that a first question? Like, did he overdose? Or, I mean... Right, yeah. Totally valid question. So, he had been clean since 20... 2013 or so? And you think he died four years ago? So, he'd been clean for a few years. Maybe, like, two, three years he had been clean. And had, did he was he a did he trust Christ as a savior or did he not? Do you know what his situation was? Yeah. I mean the way that I kind of say it is like he loved Jesus, but yet really struggled with drugs. Like at the end of the day, he knew Jesus was like the all be all and really repeatedly multiple times was like trying to go back to Christ and in a lot of scenarios. But yeah, I think it was just a, a thing that he could never quite shake, which you know, eventually he was able to get clean. But yeah, he did love Jesus. Yeah, and so for the listeners out there, I know there's people of all different perspectives and, and worldviews, but what Evan and I are talking about is we have a Christian worldview where the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's it. There's nothing we can do. Jesus did it all. Mm-hmm. And so if his father believed and trusted in Christ, then he's saved and he'll be waiting for heaven in eternity. But that doesn't mean we're free from struggle. Sometimes yeah. we have the demons and the pain in our life that we Christ can heal us, but then we also have to work through it on our own and with each other. So that's kind of what we're talking. I was just wondering. So you will see him again. That is yeah. encouraging. Absolutely. Amen, man. All right, we'll keep keep going with the story. Yeah. So fast forward back to the moment where we decide, hey, Charlotte's not for us. Funny enough, my mom gets a contract job to go to Alaska for nine months, and she was like, hey, do you want to watch the house? And we were like, well, for sure we do. And so. We go down to Atlanta, and in that moment, it was like pretty apparent that I was going to do something business marketing related. I just felt like then that season that was the best move for me. And you're how old at this point? Oh, uh, twenty two ish, twenty two ish. Yeah, yeah, twenty two. Let's go twenty two. Had some marketing experience and was like, you know what? I've been listening to this guy named Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's got this whole like you know Vayner Media. He's got this huge marketing agency. He's got multiple like hundreds of teams across the world. But I looked at that and I was like, you know what? I don't think I could do it quite to that scale. But I was like, I know business uh, from growing up and uh, studying it. And I was like, I bet you I could start my own marketing agency. And so that's what I did. Kind of basically bootstrapped the whole thing. The thing that was kind of cool about it uh, in retrospect was when we got married, Missy had $100,000 in debt between a car debt and student loan debt. And... We paid that off within three years of being married, but also during that time, that's when I bootstrapped my entire company. So like without additional funding, having to put money aside to not invest back into the business, it was definitely a slower growth, but we just continued to pay off that student loan debt and get everything paid off, which was great. Yeah. Very smart. Poise is your future. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where it was like, man, where do we choose? Like that was a hard business decision to make because as my agency was started to grow, I was like, man, do I put money there or do I have to pay off our personal debt? And what's pretty cool is like in retrospect, I've been able to double our bottom line revenue for the last three years in a row every single year. Uh, and even during that time, I was able to pay off all of that debt, which is crazy. Hey, let's take a minute. I mean, we're not uh, the Dave Ramsey show, but help the listeners. How did you do it? You had 100000 which seems impossible for some people. Right. And, you know, the average person, I hate, I think the last number I saw was the average American. It's like 18,000 in credit card debt alone. That's Ooh. not other debt. Yeah. So that's not house debt, car debt, medical debt, 
gambling, <laughs> no, whatever their whatever their whatever their vice their is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, so talk to you. How did you, as a young married couple at 22, mm. pack away 35,000 a year to pay off debt? Yeah, great question. Uh, so the first thing was being on the same page. I remember Missy came over. I think we had just gotten engaged or something like that. And I've always loved my math and numbers. And I was like, all right, but how much debt do you have? And I think she had already kind of told me. She was like, it's like above 50 or I don't know what she said. She wasn't um, hiding anything from me. But like it was time to actually look at the numbers and figure out all right, how much are we actually talking here? And dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And she was like. She's like, I don't really want to do it. You know, she was kind of like beating around the bush. I was like, all right, well, here, we'll make a thing out of it. We'll grab a glass of wine and we'll just sit down and look at our Excel sheet or whatever, which that's probably some people's nightmare aside from the wine. (laughs) Math? No math. (laughs) Yeah, I left left school. But we basically looked at it and, you know, I think she definitely felt, and I was not trying to shame her in any way, but like, I think she just was aware that she had not made the best financial decisions. And so I think from that moment on, she was exceptionally committed to paying it off. And I think that really helped because it was not just me trying to convince her that this is what we should do. I think she really understood the gravity of it and that we wanted to be debt free as soon as possible. And so we just lived very, very modestly. But at the same time, we like, we didn't eat rice and beans every single day, which is totally an option for some people, but we like to like shop for fairly nice grocery products, you know? So we were spending $500 a month or $600 a month in groceries. So we didn't go to like extreme poverty or anything, but we just were very intentional. Like any of the stuff that we didn't need, we put off. If we really felt like we needed it, we're like, hey, can we wait like another year or like two years before we buy that? I really have still developed a habit of like, I just wear one pair of shoes and I just wear them to the ground. So like, you know, we talk about $250 shoes not being a good thing. I'm wearing Ultra Boost right now, which are probably close to that, but I wear this one pair. They're super comfortable and I wear them for a year and then I take a new pair of shoes. But it's there's not a secret formula. Dave Ramsey's got a lot of great resources. You can look into, you know, do what debt do you pay off first? I think it's a self-awareness of whether or not you need that extra incentivization, like incentivization, because I look at it and I'm like, no, we're very disciplined. My wife and I are both very disciplined people. So if we say that we're going to pay off debt, we're going to do it. Um, some people need like the extra momentum. So they'll do a snowball method. So that's when you pay off the smallest debts first. And then you, um, uh, add up the monthly payments that you were making on the smaller debts to the bigger debts. And then you just basically pay it off by gaining momentum. We decided that we were going to pay off the debts that were, uh, had the most interest, the most like total interest. So if like Mm -hmm. a $10,000 loan had, let's say it had 10% interest and a $9,000 loan had like 15% interest. We do the math calculation and go, you know what? We actually need to pay this one off first. Because it would cost you more money. And the end of the day, it would have cost us more money. Yeah. And then eventually we got, uh, another thing I would suggest is like raising your income level. You have to, you know, just getting paid more at your job is not necessarily a great way to build wealth. Really a great way to build wealth is through investing or business, which is a whole nother topic or topic we could talk about. But yeah, I mean, do try to uh, see if you can negotiate your salary. If you do, if you are employed, Uh, But being self-employed and owning my own company, it was more so a balance of like, okay, I need to have an emergency fund for my own business that it can run for six months. But anything above that, I'm going to like be putting directly into student loan debt, which was kind of sad because 
I wish we didn't have the debt, right? But that's just the matter of fact we did and we had to pay it off. So like if I, if we took that $100,000 in debt that we didn't have. So I suggest first off, don't get in debt because the $100,000 we would have had, man, that could have paid for so much. Uh, and my company could have been even larger than it is today. And we could have a more, a better lifestyle, given more money away, all that stuff. But if you do have debt, I think end of the day is just be disciplined and have self-awareness for what you need. So if you need to build momentum, build momentum, but that would probably be the best advice I have. All right. And let's talk about one more question on this topic, then we'll move back into your story. Okay. You have that self-control, you have that mental awareness. So you take a lot for granted in the sense of what, let's say the quote unquote average person has. I see all the time a harsh reality that people don't understand the difference between need versus want. And you've Mm -hmm. brought that up several times. Talk to us about how you see need versus want and give some illustrations so the listeners can help understand it and apply it. So when you're trying to think about what's a need versus a want, the first thing that comes to mind is social settings. So I realized pretty early on that I could go somewhere and hang out with my friends, but not buy anything when we went out to eat. Like I would stop by the grocery store and grab a power bar for $2 when we would go out to eat with our friends and our friends would, you know, spend 30 bucks on a meal um, or whatever. And we just tried to make it not awkward as possible, but we were just on a mission to pay off that debt. And so there's little things like that that add up over time. And so I think that there's an awareness of like, Hey, do we have to, you know, it's like, Oh, we have to like spend money to go out with the deep, uh, to eat with our family or our friends or whatever. It's like, no, you don't have to. That's not really a, a have to thing. You just feel pressure to actually appear normal and do what normal people do, which is go, you know, go out to eat or whatever. Well, people are in debt, so let's not do that. Yeah, right. And there's so many times where somebody's asked me to hang out or during that season. And I was like, hey, man, I would love to go grab beers with you, but like, just during the season, we're trying to like keep it low key. And so we'd go hang out at Starbucks for an hour and probably wouldn't even order drinks at Starbucks, you know? So <laughs> that's a social setting where it's a need versus a want. But then honestly, anything that doesn't help your actual body just survive, like that's pretty standard definition. So you need shelter, you need food, you need water, but do you really need that nice apartment? Like, can you, can you double up with somebody? Can you have a roommate? Like, And I think you're right. I think at some level I do, maybe based off life experiences and stuff. But man, I I think it ultimately comes down to self-awareness. Like what, just why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Like the, how are you spending your money? And that's a great track record because um, Christian or not Christian, uh, Jesus has a great saying. It's like, hey, where your money is there, your heart will be also. Or it's just basically an indicator of what you really care about. So I would encourage people to literally have the courage to look at the last three months of their spending and figure out what they spend their money on. You don't have to keep a budget, no budget at all. Just look at what you actually spend your money on and then that will be an indication of your priorities. Yeah, and if you have a grocery bill of 300 and your cable bill is 450, you might want to uh, reevaluate. <laughs> yeah, my friend of mine who I absolutely adore, he's one of my best friends. He, him and his wife are paying off some debt right now. I mean, he's like, man, I just got to have cable for football. And I'm like, but you don't. Like, you don't have to have that. You know what I mean? Like, you just not watch football for a year. And we got people right now listening literally from all over the world, Evan. 
some people are like, what a shallow bunch of guys these are. And, I or, bet no, they think uh, that, yeah. <laughs> or, or and there's other people who are very wealthy and they're like, who cares about 400 bucks? You know, it's, you know, my, my golf fees this year were 250000 yeah. So we have a very diverse audience. But if you're listening and you're one of the middle class in America, the average or the, the people struggling, and this is gold. Take it, run with it, apply it, reach out to me, reach out to Evan. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I know Dave Ramsey has a great program. But um, getting debt under control is huge. The borrower is servant to the lender. And if you have debt, you can't be free to do the things you want to do because you have a responsibility to pay it off. So get free, get free fast, and uh, get help if you need it. So Evan. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, I'm thinking of like little things that we did. I looked at the interest rate that we had on our loans, and I looked at the, what the penalty would be if we pulled out our 401ks, uh, which were not much. But we looked at that, and then we also looked at what it was earning in interest, and it made more mathematical sense to pull out our 401ks and take the loss, the penalty, um, to pay off more debt. So that was one of the things that we did, which doesn't seem conventional, but mathematically was the thing that was going to be the best move for us. Yeah, and doing stuff like that, definitely, definitely think through it, pray, get with a qualified financial advisor. Yeah. I can't tell you how many financial advisors I've met. I mean, you can agree or disagree. Oof, I'd say I have known some great financial advisors. Sure. But the majority that I've met are actually in debt themselves and have no idea. They wow. just push the products of what their company tells them to, what they get commission off of. And they couldn't finance a $2,000 computer if they tried. That's crazy. I mean, there's some really, really, just like anything else, there's good and bad in all kinds. But uh, what do you call a doctor that graduates first in his class? What do you call Doctor. Yeah, doctor. Yeah. What do you call a doctor that graduates last in his class? Doctor. Doctor. And same thing with financial advisors. You've got to find the good ones if you're going to trust them with your future. Yeah. Uh, you're trusting Christ, but your money, you know. All right. You so now educate yourself too. I mean, yeah. like, you can't be a victim. Uh, you can't have a victim mentality and just go, I just don't understand it. Well, that's not really any way to live your life. Just to give external locus of control and hand over the keys to your life to everybody else. Make a decision to go, you know what? I'm in control of what I can control and I'm going to do the very best I can. So if you don't know anything about finances, man, I would really encourage you read as much books as you can, read as many online articles as you can. And I, for a while, I did not love like even my own accounting for my business, but I just wanted to be as educated as possible before I handed the keys off to somebody else for them to manage it. So yeah. So you don't get taken advantage of too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. So your mom goes to Alaska. You're in Atlanta. Pick up the story there. Yeah. So um, we're in Georgia. Sorry. Not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alaska would be cool, but she's in Alaska. We were in Georgia. So we moved down there and we kind of house sit for my mom uh, for a few months. And that also uh, probably helped us financially with some margin. And this is a little side note. I worked for a dealership, a car dealership, because a friend of mine said he made a ton of money selling cars. So that was another thing that I was like, all right, I got to increase our income in order to pay for this. And I quickly learned that was not the route I wanted to go. I love sales, but man, that world was crazy. Like the guy I worked for as like an MTV show, like he was like throwing phones across the the room. I was like, all right, this is no bueno. And so I'd already thought about starting my company, but I was like, nah, let's get a normal job. I won't start caffeine marketing. My wife is like, you need to start caffeine marketing. And I was like, nope, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna go like work for somebody else. And then very quickly it was like, nope, that's not the right you're supposed to go. And so I started caffeine, uh, bootstrapped it really. I mean, we could talk client acquisition strategies, but in the very beginning, I was just really gritty. I mean, I would just reach out to as many po- people as possible. I was pretty bad at sales. I didn't have a great messaging script or a sales script or marketing funnel to begin with, but it had to start somewhere. 
and uh, started off primarily doing social media marketing and then moved into holistic marketing strategy and really found my why, which was that I want to help business owners like my dad and grandfather to grow their company. Because when we help grow an entrepreneur's company, not only do they uh, win, but their families and their entire company wins and they increase the quality of life for all those people. So that's why I started Caffeine Marketing. It's been awesome. It's been a ride for the past couple of years. We had a baby boy six months ago. His name is Titan. My wife. Nice. Yeah. It's a pretty cool name. I equate it to like a Porsche 911. You know, it's like understated power. You know, it's not over the top. <laughs> so that's what we were thinking for him. And then recently, I've within the last year and even the past couple of weeks, I've had a lot of new exciting business stuff happen where... I've started an education side of my company, giving people the exact blueprint that I've run to double my company's bottom line revenue for the past three years, every single year without adding overhead or stress. And so I'm really excited to launch that. We were talking about that earlier. You can find that on my website. Uh, and then also I've got other, so I'm starting to get into the private equity world. I'm working with a couple deals right now. I'm currently a part, a partner in one other business. It's a fly fishing guide business, but I'm also trying to enter into this world of buying uh, other companies and then growing the revenue and then selling them to private investment firms, which has been pretty fun so far. Yeah. That's a whole world of experience right there. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's talk about, because there's a lot of people right now and they have small businesses and and small business by definition, it doesn't mean you make $10. No. It just means you have under, what is the standard now? 500 employees as a small business? I think it's more than that. The way that I typically define it, I mean, this is not the small business handbook definition, but we work with companies that are doing less than $50 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me is about a small company, at least by my definition, at least. Yeah. And the, the way the government defines it is it's, you know, government. So it's always changing and ineffective. But like, like Evan was saying, 50 million, some of you would be like, I wish I made 50 million, but that would yeah. still be a small business. In some situations, it could be 250 employees and some it could be 1500 employees. But when someone says they own or work with small and medium sized businesses, that just means they're not working with Coca-Cola, multi-billion dollar international company, but they're still working with large players. So yeah. I get, before we go on, I keep thinking caffeine. Why'd you name it Caffeine Marketing? My goodness. So I, for so long, the original name of, I don't know, I've never said this publicly, <laughs> at least not in a while. <laughs> the original name of my company was Knox Media LLC. Um, okay. And I just want to, I was very quick to move and I'm like, I just need a name. Let's just go for it. Let's see what we can do here. And so that's how I, I came with Knox Media, but I never loved it. My grandfather owned a store called Knox Jewelers in Atlanta. And so that was kind of like the my, the route my family had gone, which is like the personal branding of the last name. I did not want to go that route. Just didn't like being like, hey, what company do you have? Oh, it's named after me, basically. So I was struggling to find a name for a long time. So like even when I first started the company, I was like, man, what do I call it? And then it occurred to me, the more time I spent around other entrepreneurs, it's like, man, we are always so gritty. Like grit and hard work is the thing that got us to where we are today. And caffeine is also usually the vehicle that enables us to do such great hard work and um, gritty (laughs) things. So that's why I picked caffeine. I just felt like uh, most entrepreneurs, since that's our typical client, could relate to that. Nice, nice. Now go back into this. So you got a small business owner listening now, and you said how you have these proven methods, and I know you have courses available, and it looks like you have a great product offering. But uh, give some steps. Give some easy steps that a small business owner, what's three practical tips they can take, run with, apply, and see success? 
I love that. So I will, I'll try to give you three on the, the caffeine labs, which is the education side. And then I'll give you like a couple marketing ones. So yeah, because everybody's looking to drive traffic now. That's like the big thing, drive traffic, drive traffic. So yeah, totally. So we'll start, let's start with marketing then. So the marketing, I think is very basically the very basic. If you just need to understand this about marketing, it is moving people through a marketing funnel. Some of it happens intentionally like or unintentionally. Uh, It's always happening all the time. But in order to really grow and scale your company to acquire new clients and new customers, you need to understand a marketing funnel and build a marketing funnel. A marketing funnel, very simply, is moving people along the process of brand awareness to consideration, conversion, and then increasing retention. So brand awareness is when people first become aware of your brand. They're never going to work for with you or buy from you if they don't know who you are. So the very first step is just getting in front of somebody. The next step is consideration. A lot of consideration comes down to your messaging. So making sure that you have the right message, that you're not the hero of your own message, um, that you're actually engaging your customers into a story and you're uh, establishing yourself as the guide of that story. You're painting a picture of success in your customer messaging. Um, You're also letting know potential customers what's at risk if they don't work with you. So like how are their lives going to be negatively impacted if they don't buy your product? And then also aligning yourself with the problem that they are experiencing in your messaging. Uh, Most people who are great at sales know that you're actually selling to a pain point. That's the thing that most people are actually going to buy from. So it's identifying what that pain point is and how it makes people feel and then selling and marketing to that. So that's how most of your messaging should be. But that's in that consideration phase. So you're creating advertisements or you've got marketing funnels in place that where people are being moved from brand awareness to consideration. And then lastly, your people who are now considering you, these are what you call a warm lead. These are people who are familiar with your brand. They're at least moderately interested in working with you. And now you want them to actually be customers. So there's a lot of, I'll give you a couple practical ways on how to do this. Uh, my favorite though is going to be some sort of lead gen. So something on your website, depending on what you sell. So either a B2B or B2C environment, this, this works out great, which just means business to business or business to consumer as a lead gen. So something somebody would actually want to download in exchange for their email. That lead gen is going to give you their email. And then what you're going to do is you're going to create a seven part, doesn't really matter how long, it could be five, seven, 12 uh, part email sequence that's going to educate them about your product. Um, it's going to convince them to buy. There's a lot of strategies behind email marketing campaigns, but at a really simple overview, it's you've got some sort of thing that they want to download. And in e-commerce, that can also just be like a 15% discount code. That also works. But in most other environments, you need to like uh, five ways that we're going to save you money. Um, And I've got a free resource that I'll recommend later. That is the similar thing. Like it's something that you would want to give your email away for. So that's the moving people from consideration to conversion. Another great way to do that is through retargeting ads. Uh, I had a business that I was talking to yesterday who I thought was absolutely bonkers. They don't work with us, but they said, yeah, we just don't have enough money to spend on retargeting ads, man. That is the easiest thing for you to do is to, um, whether that's set it up yourself, if you're a really small business or hire an agency to do it, you only need a couple, you know, depending on how much traffic you have, you could spend a dollar a day and show people ads so that um, they don't forget about you because when it comes time to buy, you want them to remember you and your brand. Yeah, and describe, just some people don't even know what a retargeted ad is. They're so busy working their pest control business or their coffee shop or their massage therapy. Explain to them what that is and how that would work, how they could practically do it themselves. So if you were going to do it yourself, I would 
I would set out. Not by, that you shouldn't talk to guys like us who are marketing <laughs> experts, but if you're going to do it yourself, here's a tip. Right, right. And I always get so nervous. Like, I don't do any other like social media advertising yourself. But if you want to set up this one thing, I'm giving. We're giving you permission to do this one thing because, or else you're going to waste a lot of money if you don't know yes. what you're doing. Because we, yes, and we exactly. don't want you to do that. We genuinely don't want you to waste a lot of money. So. This is the one thing that you can not mess up that bad, okay? But a retargeting ad is you're going to put a piece of code on your website that's going to track people um, so that you can show them ads later. With Facebook, it works. You install what's called a Facebook pixel, and you put a piece of... It's basically a small piece of code that goes on your website, so don't be intimidated by that. And what that code does is it's going to track every time somebody who's logged in on their phone... Uh, in their Facebook or Instagram app. They don't have to be in the app, but like if they've got that logged in on their IP, like if that IP address is associated with um, that profile, it's going to track them. So now I can track a person uh, whenever they come onto their, your website. So if Joe from Nebraska comes onto your website and looks at you know your website, but doesn't decide to buy from you or in the pest control scenario, doesn't decide to work with you, you can then show him retargeting ads within Facebook's ads manager. So you would just create a business manager account. You would create an ad account and then you would install that pixel on your website. It's a small piece of code. And then once you do that, um, you can, it's depending on the traffic that you have to your site, it might be a dollar a day or it might be a hundred dollars a day, depending on how many people actually are on your site. And you can also upload customer email lists or existing clients to retarget ads to. But the general idea, by definition, a retargeting ad is somebody's come in contact with you. They're already familiar with your brand. So remember that brand awareness part. And you're essentially showing them ads to get them to actually work with you. Yes. And there is, and Evan and I, you can talk to us privately and, you know, talk to caffeine. There is a whole lot more to it, but that is in a nutshell what you can do. Mm-hmm. But don't take that lightly either, because as your website grows, and that might be the next question, people think, I can't sell ads because I don't got people coming to my website. How do I do that? Well, mm-hmm. again, talk to us. But once you get that traffic and once you get those sessions on your website, this can turn into a nice income stream. I mean, you can make serious money just by retargeted ads and selling ad space. And uh, one simple trick I love is just mobile is 70%. Mm. 70% of your traffic or more for most industries is mobile. If you're putting together an ad or a web page, use portrait. Use hmm. portrait yeah. images because now you have more real estate on that phone screen to sell ads. Mm-hmm. And that's something you may not ever use, but if you do, you can thank us later. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, you're basically what you're doing is you're taking up the greater real estate on the ad because a four by five, which is a portrait, like you were saying, is going to uh, have more quote thumb stopping power because there's going to be more for them to look at than a landscape mm-hmm. image. Yeah. Just fills more of the screen and there's more to click and more to sell. That's so. a great tip. All right. So, Evan sharing with us. Share us one more thing. Share us, how do you even get people to your website, Evan? What's a tip you'd use for that? I would love to share a couple ideas with you there. And then I don't want to forget the the core three of Caffeine Labs, which I think is so crucial for any business owner who really wants to be successful in the long term. But another great way to get people to, I just want to break down the different ways that most people try to get traffic and maybe feel discouraged. Some people will 
try really hard at SEO, which is search engine optimization. That's certainly one way to go about getting traffic to your site, but that's a really long play. I think you should always be doing it when you can. You can do that by doing on-page SEO, which basically means you're optimizing all the keywords on your site. There's also technical SEO, which just means making sure that your website is set up correctly for Google to index it. But you always want to be cognizant of SEO, learn as much as you can about SEO so that your website is set up correctly so that it's going to appear higher in Google as time goes on. But if you're just starting your website, most likely you're not going to rank really high in Google because you've not been around that long and you probably don't have that many keywords on your site. Or yeah, and I want to stop. And Evan, again, you always correct me if you don't agree. But um, as a marketing consultant also, I believe you should be working in at your business and what you love and what you're passionate about. Yeah. And if you're trying to be an expert at everything, you're going to be mediocre at everything. So when you find a qualified company, let them do this for you and pay them to do it. Because if you make X dollars an hour and they're charging you a fraction of that, just pay them so you have the time to spend with your family or grow your business in other areas. But also, Evan, before we move on past SEO, I see that as a, not only is it an ever challenging opportunity, but it's a dying opportunity because I'm watching Google absolutely shorten and close the window because now you have so many paid ads and even the geographic locations. And it's really to get on page one is not easy to begin with. No, but it's almost going to be in my perspective, I'm seeing it's only going to be paid or play in a couple of years. What do you think about that? In a lot of ways, I agree with you. I think that reputation management for a local business, that just basically means making sure that you're getting reviews on your website or for your local listing. I think that will pretty much always be important. But I do think that you're right. If you're not within the top three, and even if you're not in the top one, I think like something like 40 or 50% of traffic actually goes to the paid ads. So immediately you're left with whatever's left of the 50%. Are they going to even click on your spot number four or five? So I, I put the whole SEO thing out there as like, yes, you should be thinking about it. And yes, maybe pay an SEO agency, but that's not the first hire that I would have. I would Exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that too, because it's something that you should do, but it's not the priority. And it's in my in my eyes, and I guess even from whatever saying, it's something that's definitely closing. It's not going to be around forever. The internet's always changing and it's it's a pay-to-play world right now and getting worse. Right. And if you can so if that's you know, if we're talking about how else to get traffic to your site. I caution you from spending too much time on SEO because it's possible that the the amount of money and time that you're going to put into that, you're not going to see that return quick enough. So that's why paid advertising, my favorite right now is Facebook. That could always change. But that back end of that advertising platform and the cost per acquisition on that platform has been really great for my clients and for us. Another great one is YouTube. Those are both great ways to send traffic to your site. But at the end of the day, traffic is is just traffic. Really what we want is conversions. And so that's why you need to learn to balance a great website and however much you're spending in advertising. And the thing that I would encourage you to think about is what is the cost per acquisition that you can afford? So what is the margin that you have in your product or service? That could be 30%, 40%, whichever. I was talking to a guy this morning who he just acquired a new company. Um, and that company, they have their B2B market. They do chemical sales or something like that. I mean, he's got like $25,000 in margin per customer. And so he can afford 
Uh, yeah, that's a lot of money per customer. Um, so mm-hmm. he can now don't use it all, but if you can use what you need, right? And so it's like what we're now doing is a math equation. So we're looking at okay, he can afford up to twenty five thousand dollars per customer acquisition for a customer. Obviously, we want that to be lower. We want to make that as cheap as possible. But it's reasonable for him to spend if he's working with over a hundred people a year, like a hundred different clients a, d- a year. Then it's reasonable for him to spend twenty five thousand dollars on a, reps- a website because that's going to pay for itself within one customer. So don't be cheap where you don't need to be. But most people don't have twenty five thousand dollars in margin. I would suggest doing the math equation of whatever you have in margin, like per client or customer, I'd multiply that by 10 at least. And then that might be a good starting point for you. But that doesn't mean that you need to spend that much. Yeah. Spend as little as possible, but make sure you're getting your return on investment. I was just talking to a client in California yesterday and they were saying how they asked me, they said, well, we were spending X dollars on this type of advertising and we were getting four and a half to five times consistently. Should we keep doing it? I'm like, yes. Yes. I'm like, if you're consistently getting four and a half times what you're investing, I said, do it. I said, advertising alone. I said, you want to make money. You don't want to just break even. But if you know you're making four and a half times consistently, why not? Right. And let's say they have 50% margin in their product, right? So they're not keeping all of that. So really, it's like every dollar that they're spending, they're getting two back if they have 50% margin in that scenario. But man, do I wish I had a machine that I could put a dollar bill in and take $2 out. Yeah. And they, they had it and I was looking at the numbers. I verified it. And I'm like, keep going. And then, oh, yeah. you know, people, the average consumer goes on Google types what they're looking for and they click the first thing at the top and yeah. that's an ad and that's paid. Mm-hmm. And you could have a $14 and 50 cent click just for clicking. You're charging that business $14 and 50 cents. Yeah. You have attorneys, five, six, 700 bucks just for a click. It's, it's not your buying. Yeah. yeah. So people are paying big money for these ads. So if you're a small business owner, you want to look at what can you buy into that's not going to break the bank, but for sure. Evan, talk about this because this drives me crazy. I look at other consultants and it fires me up because they really are just stealing from people. They're overcharging on purpose. I get a $50,000 website and they're super proud of it, but you yeah. look and you're like, honestly, that was a $4,000 website they built you. They right. just stole that money. But when it comes to marketing, and it comes to return on investment, people came in our generation from television and radio and it took months. It doesn't take months anymore. Talk mm-hmm. about that. What should people's expectations be from an online promotion these days? So with paid advertising, so the first thing that you need to understand is your own sales cycle because it's going to be different from business to business. So by the time that somebody comes aware of you, how long is it before they typically work with you? We can increase that by those retargeting ads that we, I mean, decrease the length of time by those retargeting ads that we were talking about because they'll remember you and want to work with you sooner. However, when we talk about like, what's the return on investment, how long to expect with paid advertising for the most part, you could see it within a month or even like two to three months. Like we, if we're not seeing a return on investment for a client within two to three months, like something is wrong. Um, something's broken somewhere. The website, the advertising, the targeting, something is not working. Um, the platform that we're using, whatever. Because when you're paying for this traffic, depending on what platform, if it's Google, these are high intent people, they're probably ready to buy. In the case of the chemical sales, let's say they're typing in chemical companies near them. That's a high intent keyword. They're looking for somebody to buy from. On Facebook, maybe it's a little bit longer because now you've 
your disruptive advertising. They weren't necessarily thinking about working with your company, but now they're aware of your company. They like your company. It's just a matter of time for when they're going to work with you. E-commerce is so, so easy to track. We've got a piece of code. We can track people from beginning to end for the most part with like 80% certainty. And then we're seeing a return on investment within days. Like, I mean, so if we have an e-commerce client and it's not working within the first 14 days or so, we know that we need to make an adjustment because we should be seeing conversions happen very quickly. But like SEO, that's one of those things where you're like, maybe, maybe it's going to help. I don't know. Yeah. And I agree with Evan. I mean, I told my clients, if you get a killer agency, you know, one month, you'll start seeing some juice. But that second month, you should really be seeing results. And by three for sure. So if you have someone that's like stringing you along and you're listening and they haven't produced results and it's been more than three months, give Evan a call, give myself a call, give a qualified agency a call because right now you're just getting money stolen from you for the most part. I mean, there's always exceptions, but that's that's probably the rule. Yeah, So that's great. All right, hey, talk about your three, you said your three core of caffeine. So this is the the three phases that I break down in caffeine labs and hyper optimizing each one of these categories, but it is yourself, your business and your leadership. And if you hyper optimize these three categories and you've got a proven system for a run, um, you're going to be ha- able to create the business of your dreams and the ones that you've really, really wanted. Uh, I think self is probably the most overlooked and under-researched as far as entrepreneurs go. Uh, I would encourage them to begin to think at a really high level of themselves like a professional athlete. Like you want your mind and your body to perform with the highest I- output possible. But it's not just your sleep, nutrition, hydration. It's also how you structure your day. It's the meetings that you take. It's having a framework on what to delegate and what to keep. All that's self-related. The second thing is your business. Uh, Most businesses have an absurd number of what I call revenue leaks. Revenue leaks are basically things that you're wasting money on that you didn't even know you were wasting money on. Like you were saying, it could be a bad agency that you're working with. And I'm not, I'm going to assume that most people are great and they're not a bad agency, but maybe they're just not producing the results that they should be. You're not seeing anything from that. Another revenue leak that comes to my mind is a small revenue leak, but uh, I was talking to a lawyer and he was like, yeah, I'm I'm spending like a thousand dollars every other month on mailers. And I'm like, have you seen any results from it? He's like, no. I'm like, then why are you doing it? Like, what are you like? He's like, well, I'm just hoping it's going to work. And that's what most entrepreneurs do. They just throw money on the wall and hope something sticks, which is not a great way to scale or grow your company. Like you certainly have to experiment, but like, let's not just throw things out into the uh, wilderness and waste your money like that. Especially big dollar items. I mean, there's some people who are investing big dollars and they're just like, nah, I'm doing fine. And yeah. so they don't mind, but it's really a huge, huge waste of money. And they could be getting more employees or investing where ROI would come in. You're right. If I think about that $1,000, so it's like say $500 or $500 a month, if you invested that back into your employees by training your employees and training your team um, or taking your team out to eat or I, whatever, I mean, it's pretty much any other better, better investment than that because revenue hi- or profitability hides a multitude of sins or like revenue hides a multitude of sins. So like all of a sudden it's like your revenue slows down and you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's like uh, that Warren Buffett saying, it's like you could figure out who's naked swimming naked when the tide goes out, you know? (laughs) So don't waste that money. Even if you've got plenty of margin, like you don't need to be overly not, you don't have to look at every $2, but just be cognizant of what you're spending. Yeah. And I agree. Well, since we're on the last comment I'm going to make, it's like with the attorneys, 
they make a lot of money. Yeah. And they can spend obscene amount of money on advertising. If they get one deal, yep. they can make it more and buy an island. You know what I mean? There's some big time. But I remember working with an attorney and he was spending $600 per click on his ads. Mm. And he was doing a lot of things. I'm like, man, I'm like, I really don't think you need to do this. You have a highly competitive market. Mm-hmm. But we made just a few tweaks, Evan. And just a few tweaks, we made his expenses like a third of what he was paying. Oh, wow. And the profitability went up about the same. So it's wow, crazy. If you, the thing is, you just look, talk to a guy like Evan and talk to people who know what they're doing and not know what they're doing by telling you it, but by bringing results with clients mm-hmm. because they're going to be able to generate you revenue and bring a greater return on investment. Because if you're going to be working hard, Get as much back as you can. Why waste the opportunity? You know, why make $100 an hour when you can make $200 an hour? Why make $5,000 an hour when you can make $50,000 an hour? You know, optimize every opportunity because you can get money back. You can get friends back. You can get vehicles back and homes, but you can't get time back. Mm -hmm. So invest your time well, not just your money. I love that. And the last part of the framework is leadership. I feel like the first step of leadership is self-awareness and self-leadership. And the course we go into really, really practical ways of how to grow your leadership, because if you're a great leader, that's going to be very advantageous for you to scale your company because you're going to have much higher retention. People are going to love working for you. They're going to be drawn into the vision and mission of your company. Everybody's lives are going to be enhanced when you become a better leader, but that starts off with self-awareness and being empathetic, I think is probably the key to leadership is trying to understand how other people are feeling, not just in retrospect, but in real time as you're talking to them. Awesome. Good advice, my friend. All right. So you brought us through your life. You are in your 20s. Mm -hmm. You have a wife. You have your first child. What's life look like for you today? It's pretty great. Everybody's everybody's always busy. So I, I always find it interesting when people say, I always, I question everything I do. And then I question everything everybody else does too. But whenever I hear people, I'm like, oh, like, how you doing? They're like, oh, I'm so busy. And in my head, I'm like, I'm way busier than you, but I would never say that. You know, like, but that's, I'm not <laughs> trying to judge them, you know? I'm just like, like, why do we say that? Is it a form of like self, we just feel like we're enough if we're busy? I don't know. But anyway, so yes, life is quote busy. Life is great. I'm finishing it, like I said, the education side with Caffeine Labs. Um, Caffeine marketing is going great. It's gone really great in the past few years. We've got some awesome clients. That looks like it's going to continue to grow. I love the business that I'm a partner of with my partner in the fly fishing business. I'm also excited to take on some other new companies with this a couple other guys. We're essentially acquiring companies for in exchange for our services. And we're going to give, we're going to take a percentage of equity and then for running the company. So I'll be, I'll function as the CMO for these companies. The other guy will function as the CEO and then COO for the other one. So that's really exciting to think about, Hey, are we going to, what companies are we going to acquire? We just finished up negotiations for one. I'm going to fly down to Florida here in, in a week or two and meet with them. They both live in Florida. And then maybe the next five years looks like, you know, continuing to save, continuing to give. We want to buy like our house outright. So currently we're renting. We have, we have enough for a down payment for sure. But I just, I love this idea of not being in debt at all and having little to no liabilities. So we'll probably buy a house here at some point and hopefully pay cash for it. So awesome, man. That's fantastic. So if you were to, we talked about your personal life and your story 
and we talked about where you're at today. You said it yourself. You're always going to be growing. You're always going to be learning. You're going to look back at this, Evan, 10 years from now and be mm. like, what a bonehead. You yeah, know, we yeah. All, you know, I look like, back at last week and I'm like, oh, I got to send emails to apologize. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But right now, right now where you're at, what's the greatest life lesson you learned from the adversity? Or a, just a couple of the great life lessons you're like, you know, looking back now, I'm the man I am today because of this. Like, what are some of those lessons that our listeners can hear and apply to their life? I think the first one is if you are a religious, I use the term religious. I don't consider myself religious, but if you do follow Jesus or have a higher power in your life, I think the first thing is when things get hard, go, go first to him, go first to God. And even when things aren't, I think that that is ultimately the thing that's going to matter a hundred years from now. And so I would just encourage people that despite all the craziness that I've seen in my personal life or have experienced overseas, I think we just have to keep our eyes on what matters in light of eternity or what's going to matter when you're dead one day, if you don't believe in that, because most things can be put into perspective when we think about the fact that we're probably not going to be here a hundred years from now. The Next thing, which is I'm really passionate about, is internal or external locus of control. And I mentioned it earlier, but basically is this idea that we can either hand over the keys to our life, to the world around us, or we can decide, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to be the master of my own fate as much as I can handle it. I may not be able to control everything, but I sure can control a lot. And so, and, and I, example of an external mindset or external locus of control would be a victim mindset. Somebody who walks around is like, woe is me. The world's so tough. My boss didn't give me a raise. Somebody's out to get me. So it's such and such is so mean, whichever. All of that is an external locus of control. You're basically just forfeiting your right to have control of your interpersonal state. An internal locus of control approach might be something like, you know what? I can't control everything, but I can control me. I can control how I view things, how I see things, how I respond to things. So I would really, that's been the thing that's been absolutely key to me. It's like amongst all this crazy stuff, I can't control everything, but I can control me. And then that's the best thing that I can do. That's some great advice because we can all get in a place where we're worried and stressing about things we can't control. And then that keeps us from doing what we can do. And so I think that's great advice. Well, Evan... We've talked about your past, your present, where you're headed. Is there anything we missed or anything you want to go into greater depth on? I think that's been, it's been an awesome time hanging out with you, David. I really appreciate um, hanging out with you guys here. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, dude. No, I'm thankful. We got through more technical issues than I've ever experienced. Have you ever been on a podcast with that many technical issues at the beginning? No, not that many, but there's always a first, you know? There we go. We can put it down. If nothing else, we've, we've overcome, right? All right, friends. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Remarkable People podcast. Hopefully, Evan's story has inspired you and motivated you and even got you thinking not only about marketing and how to grow your business, but how to grow yourself, how to grow your life, how to grow your personal side, your spiritual side, your physical side, because it all works together. At the end of the day, it's all about God and each other. So I hope this really did help you. If you have any questions, let Evan and I know. Check out the show notes for the links. Also, please rate and review the podcast. Share it with your friends. The more listeners, the more we help people, the better it is for everybody. So we love you. Like our slogan says, train, do, repeat for life. Until next time, this is Dave Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. God bless and have a great day. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out.
Remarkable People podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life.